Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 through 13 is the reading tonight. I will read and then let us pray after the reading. Beloved, this is the word of God. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Let us pray. Father, we do pray. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified in the hearing of your word read and preached, and that you would help us in the reading and preaching of the word. Grant understanding to us. Grant, Father, all necessary faith to us to believe what you have said. May we give our whole life to it, holding nothing back to this word. May, Father, we believe this so firmly that we commit ourselves to everything you have said and done in it, and that we would even build our life upon it. And Father, we pray that in spite of all our weakness, under the ministry of preaching, that you would come and help us by the measure of your strength and love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. In tonight's reading... The Spirit of God is bringing us a lesson about faith. We will be helped by thinking about what faith is and what faith is not. This will be good for us, a true good, not a passing good, not a good that goes away at the end of history. This will be a true good for us because faith is necessary to enter eternal life. In fact, Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to draw near to God. Without faith, it is impossible to hope in God in this life or in the next. We must have faith in God's existence and faith in God's goodness if we are to have God himself as our God. God gives himself only to those with such a faith. But God is even the one who gives you faith in the first place. He gives to you as gift what he requires of you. 
so you can have even more himself. And that is what our passage is about tonight. So through this passage, the Lord Jesus comes to, well, to give you faith if you don't have it. He comes to increase your faith if you do have it. And he comes to confirm your faith so you will be persuaded that you are at peace with God. He's going to do all of these things tonight. In fact, by the time we come to the end of this passage, you will see that even the newest Christian today has more faith than this centurion who is highly commended for his faith. So let's work through it. And as we do, the lessons on faith become more and more prominent until they reach this grand crescendo at the end. According to verse 5, our Lord has returned to home base, which is the village of Capernaum. This is a village right on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. Peter's mother-in-law lives in Capernaum. It was here in the synagogue of Capernaum that our Lord preached one of his most shocking sermons. Remember that one? Where he said, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That's the John chapter 6 sermon. A lot of our Lord's ministry happened in Capernaum. Capernaum is in the region of Galilee, which puts it right up next to the Gentile lands, to the north and to the east of the nation of Israel. Capernaum would also have had Roman soldiers living there perhaps a small garrison. The Romans, remember, were the occupying army of the entire region. They invaded Palestine in 63 BC under General Pompey, and they took control. They allowed the Jews to live as Jews, but the Romans collected taxes and enforced their military power whenever they felt necessary to do so. Now, the centurion who comes to our Lord He is a military leader of the Roman army. In his title, you can hear our English word century, which means 100 years. A centurion is a commander of 100 soldiers. He is no regular soldier. He has achieved high status in the Roman army. He is an accomplished man. He is certainly not a Jew. He has no personal roots in Israel. And the Jews, well, for their sake, they would have ordinarily thought of him as their enemy and as unclean. But unexpectedly, this particular centurion has a very good relationship with the local Jews of Capernaum, which becomes important soon enough. Now, we don't learn about this good relationship from Matthew. We learn about it from Luke. Luke reports on this same event in Luke 7. He tells us the Jews of Capernaum urged Jesus to heal the centurion's very, very sick servant. Luke tells us, in fact, the Jews of Capernaum said this to Jesus. He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. That's in Luke 7. Keep all that in mind. Now back to Matthew chapter 8, verse 6. The centurion speaks. He says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. 
Now, what is amazing about this is that a Roman centurion is seeking help of a Jew in a fishing village on the fringes of an already fringe country conquered and occupied by the Roman Empire. This is like the president of some big corporation, if you fill in the blank, the president of some gigantic corporation going down to the basement of corporate headquarters, finding the third shift janitor and asking him to do heart surgery on his artery because it has a 99% blockage. Hey, I heard from the office pool that you're really good at heart surgery. This is how remarkable it is that a centurion of the occupying army is coming to a Jewish man who is occupied asking for help. This centurion has elite-level power, elite-level influence, and he wants Jesus to help him. And what kind of help does he seek? Don't miss this. Help that will overcome the power of death. That's what this is about. The centurion's servant is about to die. And he wants Jesus to do what the mighty Roman army has never been able to do, to stop death in its tracks. Jesus responds, I will come and heal him. Now, how does the centurion, how does he hear that response from our Lord? Does he hear it as the response of an inferior man who is ready to obey the superior man, the centurion? No, he doesn't hear it that way at all. Because according to verse 8, the centurion, hearing our Lord's response, immediately declares how he, as a centurion, is not worthy to have Jesus come into his house. And we are about to get to our first lesson of true faith. The centurion would have known that Jews do not enter the houses of Gentiles. But in verse 8, this centurion is saying something much more significant than that. He is exalting Christ to a higher status, higher not only when compared to the centurion himself, but higher also when compared to the whole picture of visible reality on that day. Remember, the power of death is looming over this whole scene like a storm cloud. The picture of reality that could be seen by anyone was that Jesus belonged to a race of men who had been conquered and enslaved by the Roman Empire. What could not be seen, however, is what the centurion could see. He could see that Jesus is the true Lord of life and death. And the centurion could see this even before his servant was healed. Calvin has such a great line. He says, do you see? Christ healed the centurion 
before he healed his servant. What did he heal in the Soterian? His blindness to the glory and the power of Jesus. So here's our first lesson in faith. A faith that pleases God recognizes that Jesus Christ holds the keys of death in Hades. This is the faith that pleases God. You recognize that Jesus Christ holds the keys to death in Hades. In verse 9, the centurion confesses that this indeed is at the core of his faith. Look what he says. He basically says in verse 9, As a man of authority myself, I recognize that you are a man of authority, Jesus. If you just say the word, Jesus, there's no reason why the death that is right now at work in my servant should resist the authority of your command. It will yield to the authority of your command because you, Jesus, have authority over death. A faith that pleases God recognize, recognizes that Jesus holds the keys to death in Hades. And isn't that how he introduces himself to the church anyway? Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, he says those very words about himself. Now let's not overlook something we heard back in verse 8. When the, when the centurion says, I am not worthy... He is directly contradicting what the Jews of Capernaum have said about him. Remember Luke 7. Luke says the Jews urged Jesus to heal the centurion's servant because, quote, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us a synagogue. But the centurion says, I am not worthy. Here's our second lesson in true faith. In the presence of Jesus Christ, someone with true faith does not think highly of themselves, even if all men do. Beloved, this is true faith. If we are in the presence of Jesus Christ and the Christian by the Holy Spirit knows that we are always in the presence of Jesus Christ, we will not think highly of ourselves. We will not think we are worthy, even if all the greatest men of our lives think we are. Faith overcomes the world's estimation of us and takes up God's estimation. Now, the Jews of Capernaum say the centurion is worthy of Jesus' help. They talk this way about him because it is how they think about themselves. They put the centurion within their circle of worth. They think they are the worthy ones, and therefore so is anyone they like. If Jesus is a prophet as they might think, or if Jesus is a miracle worker, as they might think, then they must be the ones worthy of his services and power. But the centurion 
deliberately steps out of their circle. I am not worthy, he says. Here then is another lesson on true faith. A faith that pleases God leads you to disavow your own goodness. But not just because you know how deep is your own sinfulness. Don't miss this. We disavow our own goodness, not just because we know our own sinfulness, but because true faith finds all of its goodness and all of its truth and all of its holiness and all of its peace in God alone. True faith finds none of those things in man, but in God. So when true faith sees God, it says, there is goodness. There is truth. There is righteousness. There is peace. And then seeing and confessing that, our soul is swallowed up by those same things that are in God. Wonderfully, I think even beautifully, this is how Martin Luther described justification in his spectacular essay, The Freedom of the Christian. One of the best Christian pieces, I think, that came out of the 16th century. I commend it to you all. Luther said in that essay, when the soul sees that Christ is all its goodness, all its righteousness, all its peace, Christ then comes and gives to the soul all that it sees in Christ. And he says that is the faith that justifies Now, verses 10, 11, and 12 are so helpful in bringing this lesson of faith to full flower. First, in verse 10, Jesus makes it very clear, unmistakably clear, that what is happening here with the centurion is a display of true faith. If we thought that this was about need, or if we thought this was about fear, or if we thought this was about neighbor love, if we try to put this simply in a sociological frame and a horizontal relation, we would be wrong because look what Jesus says explicitly in verse 10. Everything going on in this centurion is about his faith. The Lord is telling us what's going on. And it is not a common faith, but a rare faith in comparison to the people of Israel. Not rare in comparison to your faith, Christian. We'll get to that but rare in comparison to the faith of the people of Israel. Jesus marvels at this person's faith. The Jews who had the law, the prophets, the priesthood, the promises, they should have recognized the Son of God in their midst as he performed these miracles, healings, and exorcisms, as he taught as one with authority, which is how chapter 7 ends, They don't recognize him, but it is a Gentile, a Gentile who recognizes him, and that's amazing. Then in verse 11 and 12, Jesus says something that helps us see what was wrong with the pretend faith of of many people in Israel. He says that the very people who think they will recline at table with the patriarchs 
at the future messianic banquet, those very people who think they are certainly going to be there, they will be thrown out of the banquet into outer darkness. They have lived their whole life talking about themselves as sons of the kingdom because of their ancestry, because of their being descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But at the day of the messianic banquet, when the patriarchs who had true faith are sitting down at the table with the Lord, many of the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. The Jews always thought Gentiles belonged in the outer darkness. That was the world of the non-Jew. That was the world of men under God's judgment and wrath. Jesus is saying, the sons of the kingdom, many will be there in the outer darkness. But Jesus is also saying his future kingdom will be filled with people like the patriarchs, but not of their ancestry. How could that be? Because ancestry is not entrance into the kingdom. Why will the future table of the messianic banquet be filled with people who are just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but not Jews? Because they have the same faith as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have the faith of the patriarchs who saw in the promised Redeemer victory over death and sin. And he was their hope and salvation, not their ancestry, not their circumcision in the flesh, but the circumcision in the heart. The true faith that does not boast in the flesh, true faith does not boast in physical descent, true faith does not boast in who your father is before God. True faith does not boast in who your mother is before God. True faith boasts in God. And that is having everything. For it is God himself who is all our goodness, all our hope, all our righteousness, all our peace and truth. So understand, ancestry will not secure a seat at the great banquet. Faith will. Beloved, faith does that much. Faith gets that much done because faith alone is the instrument which actually lays hold of all of God. Nothing else does. But there is yet a great encouragement for us to take from this passage and really to take from the New Testament. The newest Christian today has a faith even greater than the faith of this centurion. How is that? Because the newest Christian has not seen the Messiah upon the earth. The newest Christian has not seen the miracles of Jesus. The newest Christian today has not seen or heard well, or heard from friends and relatives of all the great healings and exorcisms of Jesus. And even though the newest Christian has not seen him, 
he or she prays to God in heaven, who is a great distance away, and prays in the name of Jesus for the commanding word of his authority over death to say, Jesus, forgive my sins for the sake of your son. And true faith in the newest Christian today believes that Jesus has commanded forgiveness for the repentant sinner. And his authority stops death in its tracks, stops condemnation in its tracks. So even the newest Christian today has a faith greater than this centurion's faith, though his was, of course, greater than all of Israel. The faith of the newest Christian is beautifully and perfectly described by Peter the Apostle in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Death stopped in its tracks. Salvation in abundance unto eternal life. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for instructing us from this passage tonight on the faith you commend, the faith you give, the faith we need. If any, Lord, among us are without faith tonight, I pray, O God, that it would please you to hear their cries for mercy, to give them, Lord, that which they cannot acquire themselves, to bring them, even in the very words of your scripture and the words of your preaching, bring them to an end of themselves, bring them to know their unworthiness because they have seen your immeasurable goodness, your righteousness, your truthfulness, your peaceableness. Lord, bring them, I pray, to an end of themselves so they might receive only what your Spirit might deliver, the true faith that sees Jesus Christ as holding the keys of death and Hades, giving them life where they are owed death. Father, renew every Christian in the hearing of this word. Renew them in what true faith is. Increase their faith as the apostles cried out to you in Luke 17. Increase our faith, Lord. But Lord, we thank you that even the faith of the newest Christian, even the smallest faith, even the beginner's faith, lays hold of all the goodness, all the truthfulness, all the righteousness, all the peace of the eternal God, Jesus Christ. And in laying hold of it all, it all has laid hold of them, justifying them. We thank you and praise you, Father, for this gift which you require but freely give. And Lord, we do pray that we would be persuaded that our faith in your Son has done everything 
For it is he who tells us through the Apostle John that our faith has overcome the world, our faith in him. Lord, give us the joy of those who are persuaded we have overcome all of the unrighteousness, untruthfulness, all of the hostility of the world. We ask it all to the praise, to the honor, to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.